It's that time of year again. There's a nip in the air, the holidays are in full swing, and you are halfway through another academic year. And that means Absite 2022 is right around the corner. Fear not, Behind the Knife has got you covered. We've got over 28 high-yield Absite review episodes and our trusty companion book available on Amazon. Everything you need to dominate the Absite. Don't forget to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org where you can easily access all of our podcasts and videos, register for free CME, and sign up for the BTK newsletter. And be sure to keep an eye out for our comprehensive oral board review material, which is due out in early 2022. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Behind the Knife, please leave us a five-star review. Now, take a deep breath. You've got this. Welcome to another episode of AppSight Review for Behind the Knife. Today, we're going to be covering head and neck. I've got Shanaz here with me to uh, go through this episode. So right off the bat, Shanaz, let's talk about some of the anatomy. Talking about the thoracic outlet, can you walk me through the components anterior to posterior triangles in the neck? Yeah, definitely. Um, so thoracic outlet is definitely going to be a question and it should be easy give me point if you can memorize the structures in order. So running it anterior to posterior, first you have the subclavian vein, then nephrenic nerve, which runs on top of the anterior scalene muscle. Behind that, you'll have the subclavian artery and then the brachial plexus before you come across the middle scalene. And then you have the long thoracic nerve. And then behind that, lastly, is the first rib. You mentioned the long thoracic nerve. There are some major nerves that we need to identify in the neck region. Do you want to go through the major nerves that we should identify and know the path for? Yeah, there's a lot of nerves that we need to know for the head and neck area. So I'll be starting a little bit higher up since we're talking about nerves anyways. Starting from the trigeminal nerve, there's three branches that are ophthalmic, the maxillary, and the mandibular branch. And these are important for sensation to the face and the mastication muscles. The next nerve to know is a facial nerve. That one controls the motor function to your face. That one has five branches. They are the temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal, mandibular, and cervical branches. After that, you have the glossopharyngeal nerve that controls the taste to posterior one-third of the tongue. And if you injure that nerve, you have issues with swallowing afterwards. The hypoglossal nerve controls your motor function to your tongue. So if you have an injury to that, you'll have a deviation of your tongue to the ipsilateral side of the injury. And then we have the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is heavily talked about in the thyroid chapters. It innervates all of the larynx muscles except for the cricothyroid muscle. And it does have different pathways depending on the right versus the left. Right one, the nerve loops behind the subclavian artery, while on the left, the nerve loops around the aortic arch. Superior laryngeal nerve, the external branch, is what actually ends up innervating the cricothyroid muscle. So if you get an injury to that nerve during any neck dissection, it affects the tone of the patient's voice. Last but not least is the auricular temporal nerve, which is usually injured during prodectomy. After injury, one of the more interesting syndromes that can develop is called Frey's syndrome. And that's when the injured nerve cross innervates with sympathetic fibers to sweat glands within the skin and leads to gustatory sweating, which is pathognomonic for the syndrome. Super high yields. A lot of these things have crossover, like you mentioned, Shana's in the thyroid, parathyroid surgeries, as well as when you do a carotid and arterectomy. 
especially to know the marginal mandibular branch of the facial nerve, uh, hypoglossal nerve, and obviously the most talked about, the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Excellent. Let's talk about the major head and neck cancers. Some of the general guidelines for the head and neck cancers is to remember the cutoff, the magic number being four centimeters. So like every other cancer in the body, there are stages one through four. Stage one and two are usually your local disease, and the treatment is a wide local excision, one centimeter margins versus radiation. If you have an intraoral lesion, wide local excision is the treatment versus if you have vocal cord involvement, radiation is the treatment. For your stage three and four, these are your locally aggressive or tumors that have distant metastases. The treatment becomes more multimodal. So for your stage three or four, your treatment includes a wide local excision plus radiation or chemo, as well as your modified radical neck dissection. So Shanaz, what does a modified radical neck dissection mean? So with a modified radical neck dissection, you'll be removing the omohyoid muscle, the submandibular gland, cervical branch of the facial nerve, nerve C2 to C5, and then the ipsilateral thyroid. This is indicated especially for patients that have tumors greater than four centimeters, as you mentioned with the magical number, but also this is indicated for patients with any clinically positive nodes or any bone invasion. Exactly. This becomes a very easy multiple choice question. So just something to remember what a modified radical neck dissection exactly entails. And then you can always add adjuvant radiation to the advanced lesions, especially some of the key characteristics being four centimeters, having positive margins or nodal or bone involvement. So one of the most common cancers of the oral cavity, pharynx and larynx is squamous cell carcinoma. Let's move on to oral cavity cancer next. So this is something that you see in patients with a very specific syndrome. Shanaz, do you know what syndrome I'm talking about here? I believe you're referring to plumber Vinson syndrome. That's right. What is it exactly? This is where you have the syndrome with glossitis, dysphagia from esophageal web, and iron deficiency anemia. Iron deficiency anemia is the key thing. You will see this in patients who are presenting with GI symptoms, but something to keep in mind, especially when you are doing an EGD, you might come across an esophageal web. Excellent. Moving on, for oral cavity cancer, what is the most common site? The lower lip because of all the sun exposure. Exactly. Moving on to nasopharyngeal carcinoma, what are some of the risk factors associated with nasopharyngeal carcinoma? So this one actually is one of the viruses, EBV, and also patients of Chinese descent. Exactly. And this particular carcinoma goes to the posterior cervical neck nodes, and the treatment involves radiation, and it is highly sensitive to this treatment. Laryngeal carcinoma is also treated with radiation, and surgery is not the primary treatment to preserve the vocal cords. Let's move on to our next topic, which is salivary gland cancers. So these are small tumors and most frequently found in the parotid glands. These can present as a painful mass and can also involve facial nerve and present with facial nerve paralysis. 
that is highly suggestive of malignancy. Preauricular mass are actually parotid tumors until proven otherwise. The diagnosis and treatment is a superficial parotidectomy with no enucleation or FNA. Even though the parotid is the most frequent site of malignant tumor, masses found in small salivary glands are more likely to be malignant. Shanaz, what is the most common site of metastases for this kind of a cancer? This one actually goes to the lungs. Mm-hmm. So the next most common malignant tumor of salivary glands is actually called the mucoepidermoid cancer, whereas the adenoid cystic carcinoma is number two. Something to memorize is this mucoepidermoid endopathology that is associated. Janaz, how would you treat this kind of a tumor? The key for treating a mucoepidermoid cancer is resection of the salivary gland. You'll also have to do a prophylactic modified radical neck dissection and post-op radiation therapy given the aggressiveness of these types of cancers. If the tumor actually is in a parotid gland, you'll need to perform a total parotidectomy. If the facial nerve is involved in a tumor, do your best to try and preserve it during the surgery. In contrast, uh, the second most common type of salivary gland tumor is adenoid cystic cancer, and these have a long indolent course. This one you want to try to avoid surgery because these are highly sensitive to radiation therapy. So refer patients for radiation before taking them for resection. One key point I've seen in questions that can point you towards this type of cancer over a mucoepidermoid is that they'll mention that the tumor is invading the nerve roots, and that's very characteristic of adenoid cystic cancer. All right, I've seen questions where you have an unknown primary, the patient's presenting with some kind of lymphadenopathy, supraclavicular and axillary region, but we don't really know where the original primary is. How do you go about addressing Having a patient present with an unknown primary with just some lymph node in the head and neck region is a very interesting question and a very hard one to figure out. In such a patient, you would first start off with a physical exam, and that includes a fiber optic exam of the nasopharynx and the larynx. You would then FNA the regional node or perform an excisional biopsy. Your FNA is your best test for diagnosis in this scenario. You can also perform a CT scan of the head, neck, and chest, plus or minus PET. You would then follow it up in the OR by doing a direct laryngoscopy, esophagoscopy, bronchoscopy, and an ipsilateral tonsillectomy. If you still do not know the primary, then you go ahead and perform an ipsilateral modified radical neck dissection, followed up with bilateral radiation. So the most common site of unknown primary is actually tonsils or the base of your tongue. If we were to see a MET or an unknown primary tumor of the head and neck, where would we see that most commonly? Just like the other head and neck cancers that we talked about, the most common site of dismant metastases is actually your lungs. Great. Last but not least for the cancers... Sometimes we'll have a question with a patient that's not presenting with uh, lymphadenopathy of the head and neck, but rather posterior neck mass as concerning for malignancy. What is that likely to be? 
most likely this is a diagnosis of lymphoma unless proven otherwise. With that, let's move on to some benign pathologies that we have talked about. Going back to the salivary glands, what is the most common salivary gland benign pathology that you can see? That would be the pleomorphic adenoma. And treatment for that would be a superficial parotidectomy. If there's actually malignant degeneration of this type of tumor, then you end up doing completion or doing a total parotidectomy. Pleomorphic adenoma ends up being actually the top tumor overall of the salivary glands. And what about number two? What is the number two benign tumor in the salivary glands? Number two benign would be Dewarthin's tumor. And treatment for this is also a superficial parodectomy. Perfect. And if you are on your pediatric surgery rotation, you're thinking about the most common tumor in children to be hemangiomas. For a parotid surgery, is the auriculotemporal nerve the most commonly injured nerve? Actually, it's not. I know we mentioned that when we were doing our nerve rundown, but for a parotid surgery, the most commonly injured nerve is a greater auricular nerve, and that ends up leading to numbness over the lower portion of the ear. And the most injured nerve during the submandibular gland resection ends up being the marginal mandibular nerve that just leads to the droop at the corner of the mouth. This is also one of the most injured nerves when there is proximal traction during All righty, moving on, let's talk about some infections. What is the treatment as well as the most common organism in a suppurative pertitis? For suppurative pertitis, I think the classic presentation is going to be an elderly patient that have been dehydrated and are presenting with swelling and pain within their cheeks. The most common organism for this type of infection is staph aureus. And then like other infections, you want to do fluid and antibiotic. You think that there is an abscess that's present with you in IND. So we just talked about superlative paroditis in elderly patients. The other population that would get pretty bad infections of the head and neck is in the opposite spectrum with young kids. So ones that are less than 10 years old. Oftentimes, in a question stem, you'll have a kid that presents with drooling. That should tip you off that we are concerned for an airway emergency due to a retropharyngeal abscess if we have a concern for infection. The way to treat these kids are to intubate the patient and then drain the retropharyngeal abscess through a posterior pharyngeal wall incision. Excellent. So that about covers it all for our head and neck section. So... Before we end this episode, we're going to go ahead and give you some quick hits. All right, let's start off with our first question. What is the painless mass on the roof of the mouth? This one is a torus palatinus. Treatment for this is actually usually nothing. The only time you'll need to do anything for this is if it's interfering with the patient's ability to wear dentures. One scenario that we all dread is seeing bleeding at the tracheostomy site. Shreya, what are we concerned about? How do we manage that? The concern is a tracheoinominate fistula. And the management, you are placing your finger in the tracheostomy and just holding manual pressure against the sternum while you are trying to mobilize for an emergent OR. 
And in the OR, your operation of choice is actually a median sternotomy followed by the resection of the innominate artery. If there's a fistula and we're addressing the innominate artery with the resection, we still have to fix the trachea. And I had definitely have seen a question or two with this. So you want to close the tracheal side primarily and buttress the repair with strap muscles from the neck. They might give you an option to put in a synthetic interposition graft. Do not choose this. There's a very high chance it'll get infected and blow out, requiring a patient to come back to the operating room. All right, that wraps it up for our absite review for the head and neck. Thanks for joining, and until next time. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.